0: Hello, welcome back to True Crime B&B. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And
1: today is episode 72. It sure is. Bailey will be our first, I will be our second.
0: Mm-hmm. I appreciate you not calling me bad this week. <laughs> I will take <laughs> it What I can get. <laughs> okay, so let's jump in. I'm going to tell you the story of the mysterious disappearance of Timothy Michael Molnar. Okay. Timothy was born May 24th, 1964, in Los Angeles, California. However, when he was, I think, elementary school, he and his family moved out to Florida, and they settled down in Daytona Beach. He, after he graduated high school, went on to study at Embry-Riddle University, and he studied aeronautical mechanics. Okay. Okay. And I'm not sure if that means he was studying to be like an engineer slash mechanic for airplanes or if he was actually in flight school because it differed depending on which article you read. I don't know.
1: I wouldn't think it's flight, though.
0: Well, he didn't get that far in Okay. And that wasn't until January 24th, 1984, when Tim was 19 years old. It was a standard Tuesday for him and his whole family, who he still lived with. Tim got up got ready for class, and then he drove and dropped off his 14-year-old brother, Frank, at his high school before he had to go in, and then was supposed to drive off to class. Okay. Unfortunately, Tim never showed up to his classes that day, and then when he did not return home that evening, his parents became concerned and contacted the police. Okay, that's understandable. Mm Mm-hmm. A day later, the Molnar's landline rang, and they rushed to answer as they're beginning to grow even more concerned after 24 hours has now passed. Right. And when they did answer it, they were met with just the sound of static, and nobody would respond to them. No voice, nothing.
1: Well, that's creepy.
0: And they weren't sure if there was just a bad connection or if there was another person on the line who just wasn't speaking. That's still unclear.
1: Yeah, you would think if they were speaking, you would hear at least little snippets of something that sounds like speech.
0: Or like mumbling of some kind. Yeah. So, we don't even know to this day if that's related, but it's strange that this happened 24 hours after he was last seen. Yeah, if it wasn't something that happened often. Mm Mm-hmm. Two weeks after that, he's still missing, and Tim's parents got back their credit card statement, because back in the 80s, you couldn't just log online and see what had gone through and what hadn't. You had to get it mailed to you. Yeah. So, they finally got that in the mail, and they found that Tim, on the day that he was last seen, did stop to get a tank of gas just a little bit after dropping off his little brother. Okay. But, the kicker here is that he stopped to get a tank of gas using their credit card, but he stopped in Lake City, Florida, and they're from Daytona Beach, which is about an hour and a half northwest of Daytona Beach. So, he wasn't heading to class. Yeah, so, Daytona Beach is kind of like middle southern of East Coast, florida and then it's
1: middle upper
0: yeah middle upper and then almost into the panhandle but not quite and it literally seemed like he was following 75 up north wow
1: i wonder where he was going but he clearly wasn't going to class
0: yeah because this was to get there just a little bit after he dropped off his brother he clearly immediately went up north wow so that's weird yep After his parents received that statement from the bank, they were able to find the cashier, and I guess they found a receipt and found the cashier connected to the receipt and the interaction, and Mm -hmm. so they went to talk to that cashier at the gas station, and he confirmed that Tim had been there. He remembered seeing him. They had a picture of him and said, yeah, he was completely alone. He just came in, totally normal interaction, and then he left. I don't know.
1: I don't know how people who work in places like that are able to remember a specific customer who came in and who they were with or what they might have been wearing or how they were acting because they see so many people in a day. How can they possibly look at a picture and say, yeah, this guy was here. He was by himself. He bought some chips and a drink and headed out on his way.
0: I don't know. Because I guess I can see that because I do work a job like that now where I might see 200 people a day, but if somebody came in and said, did you help this person last week and showed me a picture? I'd probably be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that face. Maybe I'm
1: just terrible with faces.
0: It could be. Because I've
1: always been like I'm
0: bad at names. I'm good with faces, though.
1: I'll remember that I know somebody's name, but I won't be able to tell you what it is.
0: So you are not the person to ask for a composite sketch.
1: I am. (laughs) Well, if it's somebody I know, yes. Mm -hmm. But if it's somebody I may have met once, absolutely not.
0: Yeah, and it's not like, oh, yeah, Tim comes in here every other weekend to get gas because he's local. Mm -hmm. He's never been here before, seemingly. Because unless you're
1: sitting there really focusing on that person and trying to remember them, Mm -hmm. that would be different. But there's no reason they would have done that. I'm not trying to say the guy didn't remember him. I just can't relate to that because I would never be able to pull that out of my brain.
0: No, totally. And it would almost make more sense if he was like, yeah, he was acting really weird. Then it'd be like, oh, yeah, I was getting kind of creeped out or wondering what's going on with him. Then it's like, oh, yeah, he stuck out for that reason.
1: Absolutely. Just
0: he came through, bought gas, and said bye and left. I don't know why you'd remember that. Yeah. So you're right. And he confirmed he'd been alone when he made that purchase. This didn't bring them any closer to finding Tim, unfortunately, other than maybe giving them the idea that he was possibly heading north. They decided at that point to go ahead and check his savings account, which was separate from his parents, and that was for his college fund, and they found that he had withdrawn before all of this, almost all of it, leaving only $10 remaining in the account. Whoa. And so at that point, they're starting to think, okay, he wanted to disappear, either that or somebody forced him to do this, but I don't know how he would have done that and then dropped his brother off at school and then disappeared if somebody was forcing him to?
1: Well, if he got involved with something and he needed that money for Mm -hmm. some reason because someone was blackmailing him or extorting it or had information about him or whatever and he was just trying to pay it off. Maybe he was trying to go confront
0: this person. Mm -hmm. Or it could even be something scared him. He said alright, I don't want to let my parents know key them in that I'm going to be leaving town because I don't want anybody to know where I am. Could be that too where he just took all the money as a precaution.
1: Mm I don't know. Which is weird. That's very bizarre.
0: Finally, around May, so he had last been seen at the end of January, in May, the Molnars got a letter in the mail from an impound lot in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: Straight up 75, like you said. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: A car registered to them, a 1969 Dodge Dart, which is what Tim had been driving at the time, had finally been towed and removed after sitting in a parking lot for the past several months. Oh, boy. And the earliest record that they had of it being there in that parking lot, I think they had security in there, was six days after Tim had last been seen. So somebody, six days later, had parked his car in this parking lot. It is important to note that this parking lot that his car was found in was about a block away from one of the main Greyhound terminals in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So that could be foul play. It could also be that was convenient for him. It could be. Still question mark. Took his money out of the bank,
1: got on a bus, mm-hmm. and headed out of town, headed out of state.
0: So when his parents went up to Atlanta to retrieve the vehicle, they found most of Tim's personal belongings, including his ID, his credit cards, and his full wallet still in the vehicle. However, they found that the stereo, a tool set, and an expensive bicycle that he always kept in the back, like the big trunk of it, had gone missing. Whoever had dropped it off here seemingly had taken those. Interesting. So, at this point, the family is still thinking he wanted to disappear. Hence, leaving all of the identifying information that can be tracked to him and all that stuff. Right. But taking with him the items that could possibly be useful to bring him some resale value if he's trying to get a ticket somewhere else or make his way up north. I don't know. I
1: think if you're taking your toolkit and your bike... Mm-hmm. That sounds like you're on your bike and you're headed somewhere where you can just disappear.
0: But if you're traveling on your bike, how are you gonna carry Our your tax- toolkit? And- we had
1: backpacks in nineteen eighty four. I know, but it they was had like saddlebags that you like it was like a several
0: thousand dollar toolkit. It was like a toolkit you used if you were going to be a mechanic for an aeroplane, you know what I mean? So oh, were- I see.
1: It was specifically for...
0: Yeah, it was a very expensive toolkit, and it was a very heavy tool. Like, it took up most of the Oh okay. trunk with that
1: bike. I'm thinking like the kind I bought you for your trunk. No, it's not one of those
0: <laughs> quick little you could put it under your passenger seat toolkits. It's yeah. not sockets and screwdrivers. Right.
1: Okay, <laughs> and a headlamp.
0: So I just think he might have taken the bike to get away, but what would you do with the stereo and toolkit while he's... Riding his bike across, I I just think that's weird.
1: That is weird. You're right.
0: Like I just said, his family is beginning to believe that he wanted to disappear and just took all these things to sell them, possibly later on. And I said, but at the same time, you could also say if a person had harmed him, they probably would have also left the same items because they didn't want to be connected to him if they were caught, and then taken the things of value to sell them. So the exact same reason that they're using hey, he might have wanted to disappear, could be said about, hey, somebody wanted to disappear him. Just saying, playing devil's advocate here.
1: In my mind, it's hard to make a connection between if there was some reason he wanted to flee Florida Mm -hmm. and then ended up in Atlanta, the reason for fleeing Florida is probably not the same reason he would have disappeared once he got to Atlanta.
0: Well, a lot of people in the comment sections were saying that they think he just drove as far on that tank of gas as he could. Then after that, he decided he didn't want to be traced any further and just went to the Greyhound bus. We don't really know. Yeah. It's a reasonable guess. Oh, and one more thing before I move on. I did want to note that once they went through all of his belongings in the car and in his room, he didn't even take so much as a change of clothing with him when he left. You would think you'd at least bring, like, oh, in case it's chilly, a jacket or something, but every other piece of clothing he owned, other than what his brother had last seen him in, was still in his closet at home,
1: and he seemed perfectly fine to his brother when he dropped him off at school. Yeah,
0: he's a super popular guy. He was a really good-looking guy. He had a lot of friends in the area. He was doing awesome. It's like nobody could understand why he would disappear unless he was involved in something that nobody knew about. But like you said, huh?
1: So weird. Just to do that on the spur of the moment, just to. I mean, you'd think if he was running away on purpose, he would at least grab a couple shirts or yeah. some socks or something.
0: I don't know. I mean, then again, he did take all of the savings out, so it's possibly stopped somewhere along the way and grabbed more clothes. We don't know. So that was all in 1984. Ten years later, in 1995, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode on Tim's disappearance, and in it, his parents explained to the audience, slash Tim, if he were to be listening, that a relative had passed away in the last 10 years and actually left Tim $50,000 in inheritance. I think it was like a great aunt or something like that. Okay. And they were telling him, you don't have to be in contact with us. If you really don't want to be a part of this family, that's fine. We just wanted you to know that that's rightfully yours and you can come claim that and we just want to know you're safe. That's it. I guess as kind of a bargaining chip to maybe get some closure on the situation. And in the meantime, while they waited to hear back after that aired... Helen Molnar, his mother, had started a non which is still open and running today, called Mother's Aid to Missing Adults, and all of that went into helping other moms go find their kids to see if, what really happened to them. So I okay. think that's sweet. Yeah, that is. After the episode aired, a man who had been watching it live on TV called in a tip. He recognized the outfit. They had a picture of Tim wearing all of the items of clothing in the episode. He recognized that exact outfit, that Tim had last been seen wearing because it had been 10 years ago that he'd seen this outfit. But when he had seen it, he had been a teenager and he found a deceased body and that person had been wearing that exact outfit so even though it was 10 years ago that. yeah a lot of people are like i find it kind of weird to believe um, no, no i think that
1: would be seared into his eyes yeah that's forever. something
0: when you wake up from a nightmare that's still in your head you know that's what right. i mean
1: i i totally believe that if you found a dead body that you will Forever remember exactly what you saw because yes. that would never be able to be washed out of your mind.
0: And the guy who called in this tip—he'd been like seventeen when he found this body. He's only twenty-seven now. It's not like
1: he's—he's he's not
0: ninety. Yeah. yeah,
1: he's not having early onset dementia or anything at 27
0: so he did call in this tip and said i know this sounds weird a decade ago i found this dead body and it was skeletonized but he was wearing this exact outfit wow and so i just wanted to let you guys aware of it i don't know what happened to that body afterwards you might need to get in contact with the police and this had all occurred in a little small town of only 600 people out in a pine forest it was called neosho wisconsin and it's northwest of milwaukee about an hour outside so he did get on a bus he got on a bus or he just kept following maybe hitchhiking yeah that's what a lot of people think is maybe he was hitchhiking, but it just seems weird. It would make sense if he was found somewhere in a big city, but why would he go to Neosho, Wisconsin or end up there if it wasn't foul play? That's So did the police ever identify
1: what happened to the remains that were found?
0: Well, they had an autopsy done, but that really wasn't that helpful because again, he was skeletal. And I should confirm the medical examiner did get DNA from Tim's parents and they did confirm that these skeletal remains were Tim. Wow. But when the tipster had called in because he had found them, apparently he had found them out in the middle of this pine forest frozen in a block of ice. In a block of ice. He said like a block of ice maybe in like a river or something like that. So it didn't seem like it was that deep but it was just far enough where he maybe laid down Somehow the, the water came up too high.
1: Oh, I'm imagining a big cube of ice, no. <laughs> like, like four feet high and eight feet long, and he's in the middle, and I'm like, what the fuck?
0: Like they, <laughs>
1: like they had to pickaxe him out of a glacier or something? Well, I would think they would let it melt, but... Yeah. Okay, so he was just in a body of water, he but was... he was frozen in, in the water. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, but they had this autopsy performed at the time... And they said that there were no signs of any kind of trauma to his bones at all. and There were no marks through his clothing items. that So would be he probably like wasn't
1: stabbed or shot.
0: Stabbed, shot, and the highway wasn't broken, so it didn't seem like strangulation. So they're not sure. It very well could have been he got disoriented out in the woods and didn't know where he was, fell into a lake or something, and took him downstream. We don't know. Yeah. He disappeared in January 84. Yes. And his remains were found when? They said it was the summer of 84, so about six months later, about, give or take. Mm -hmm. If he was fully skeletal when he was found in the summer. Well, that would make sense. It had to have been about probably spring at the latest because he was found in ice. Oh, So you would think it'd be pretty cold when they found him. Or it
1: may have been December of that same year.
0: That's true could just be a couple so days. it may
1: have been that he was found almost a year later
0: that makes it was sense. the next
1: winter mm-hmm. yeah that makes be. more sense to me
0: yeah me too because it it was the same winter then so how long would it take a body out in the
1: wilderness to get to that point of decomposition where they were only bones
0: it can be as little as i believe six weeks Especially if wildlife and heat is a factor. But since it is Wisconsin...
1: It's not as hot up there, but it does get hot sometimes It does in get hot, especially
0: in the summer. And then a lot of wildlife, I'm sure, out in the middle of a pine forest is wandering around. So I would say within probably a couple of months that could happen.
1: But if it was wildlife, it would have to be small wildlife because none of his bones were carried off, were they? Was he fully... There, he it was, seemed
0: it seemed like he was,
1: and he was still in his clothing. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he probably wasn't scavenged by large animals like bears.
0: But it also could just not even be wildlife at all that did this. It could be he fell into this body of water,
1: but he didn't hit his head because he didn't have any bone trauma.
0: Well, no, but if he drowned and then he was in the water with running water for a certain amount of time, that is going to speed up decomposition Absolutely. too. So, yeah. There's just a lot of factors that I don't really have the answer to, but... Yeah. I
1: don't know. Wow, so interesting and so disturbing that that there's no explanation for what the hell he was doing up there.
0: I don't know. Because it seems like pretty soon after he got there he died. Yeah. I mean, if he wasn't already dead by the time he got to that town, you know what I mean? And it depends how he got up
1: there. It might have taken him a month to get up there if he was hitchhiking mm-hmm. and stopping and staying in places and
0: and maybe going all the way up north wasn't even his original plan. Maybe he wanted to go back out west and then just said, "Ah, no. We have no idea of knowing." Wow. They still don't have a cause of death. They still don't know what was behind it if it was Suicide, possibly. It could have very well been like an overdose, of a suicide attempt or something like that. That this Or an accident. Or an accident. It could be any of those, all of the above. And we don't know. But if he but... did want
1: to take his own life and he thought it would maybe be less traumatic to his parents to leave them some hope. hmm And then he just disappears and goes somewhere else to actually do it so that they don't have to find him. But I would think as a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, neither one of those things is ever going to be a good situation, but of yeah. the two, I would think eventually at least knowing what happened to your child would have to be less anguish than having no idea.
0: Well, yeah, it's almost like, this is one of my last bullet points, even though the news obviously wasn't good news, his mom, who'd been waiting for over 10 years to find out what happened to her son, was still relieved because... At the end of the day, for all she knew, he was out in somebody's basement being tortured every single day the last decade. And she's like, well, at least he's been at rest. At least he's been gone this whole time. It's not been, oh, my son just is out there and just chooses not to have a relationship with me. That would have hurt worse to her, I think, just not ever knowing. Yeah. And it seems
1: like it's possible he did not die a violent death. It seems Mm -hmm. like the last place that he was was a beautiful place, peaceful place. Mm-hmm. So there's something good to be said about that. If that's what you have to have in your mind as a parent, that the last place your child was, was looking up at vine trees.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: That's not the worst way to go. Mm-mm. Especially if it was his own choice. Absolutely. Wow. It's but- a sad
0: case, leaves just enough doubt in your mind where it's like, but something could have happened. Yes. And it could have been something that went very wrong and it's Sad that it's almost unsolvable at this point. Nobody
1: will the, probably ever know. The only way it could be solved is if there was another person who knew him up there or was involved in it and came forward. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't see how they could ever solve this.
0: It's just what? He would only be 59. Yeah. Isn't that crazy?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So much intrigue in that story. That
0: It is so weird because you can quite literally see, if you look at a map of all his stops, you can see where he's going the whole time. You can just follow the path. like it's. Well, yeah, but 75 North intersects with a lot
1: of other interstates. Mm-hmm. So he may have intended to go up and branch off east or west. Yeah. And then maybe he caught a ride with somebody and they got to talking and they're like, just come on up. I have some
0: property out here. You'll
1: love Wisconsin. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. It's almost like the Ryan Stuka case except for they finally got some closure on this one because they found their son.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's so wild that you would never expect. It's literally a 19-hour drive from where he lived in Florida to that town in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah. And, and we, that's assuming you stay on the interstate the whole time. Yeah. And I doubt that he went directly there unless he caught a bus.
0: Well, even from when you're seen at the gas station, right when you get almost to the panhandle of Florida... And then following seventy-five into Georgia, by the time he stopped in Atlanta and put his car in that parking lot, six days had passed between getting gas down here, which is only probably about I don't know four or five hour drive. Mm-hmm. Took him six days. I just want to know where was he this whole time? Was he putting all of his stuff, getting his final arrangements, trying to maybe he was out just wandering
1: around, deciding what he wanted to do.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a
1: lot of national forests in Georgia.
0: That's true. He could Once have just you- been sightseeing, honestly.
1: Well he may have just been stopping and crashing in forests overnight
0: Mm-hmm. that's true and it probably taking the bus up there rather than driving it gives you time to think because it's kind of hard to think sometimes when you're mm-hmm. when you're driving yourself so was
1: there nothing in his history before he disappeared from Florida that maybe involved him in the drug world or any kind of illegal activities like that
0: the only mention of that that i ever saw was on a reddit thread where people were talking about this case and somebody else said he was a drug dealer he was such a crackhead like oh he was in the drug scene heavy back then yeah but who was that that said this that's what i'm saying like there was no source he was just saying yeah i lived in this town and i heard about this and so it's like okay just because you heard the rumors down the grapevine from the 80s doesn't make it a fact yeah. And I, I don't think... He I, lived at home with his parents and brother. If anybody knew if he was doing drugs, they would probably have at least some inkling that that was going on.
1: And if it was just minor stuff like cannabis, yeah, that's not really a reason for him to do this. You know, maybe if he yeah. got into a heavier drug scene or maybe he was trying to sell some and somebody got mad because he couldn't pay him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or he, maybe he did pay him and that's why he took his money out of the bank.
0: Yeah. I don't know.
1: I don't know either. I just don't
0: think it's that reputable of a source to even spend the time considering that. Because, I mean, his family knew him best. And they wanted him back so bad. If there was any kind of drug or history of we think this gang might have done something to him, they would have by now said something. And they never did. Yeah. So.
1: Well, I wasn't bringing up the drug stuff. No, I know. Trying to validate the Reddit source. (laughs) I'm just saying... I'm trying to come up with reasons that he might have done this because Mm -hmm. it just seems so bizarre to just suddenly, one day, I'm just going to leave my life. I'm not going to take any clean underwear. I'm just taking all my money out of the bank and buy. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go take your money and start a new life, you could use less of the money you took out of the bank if you took some clothes with you, if you took some toiletries with you, if you took a couple Mm -hmm. pairs of shoes, a tent. So you can stay in the woods.
0: And I get he didn't want to be recognized, so maybe you didn't want to wear stuff that your family would look out for this, you know? But you don't own a plain white t-shirt. You don't own things that a thousand other people have that exact thing in their closet. That actually
1: brings up another question. Was he still wearing, when he was found, when his remains were found... He was still wearing the same outfit he had on when he left in January? Yeah, that he dropped his little brother off at school in that morning. The same exact clothes when he was found deceased. I
0: know, that's another...
1: Probably ten months later.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That's another puzzle piece to the whole story because that does kind of make you think, well, maybe he does have something happen to him. Maybe this was somebody disposing of him because maybe a week at most, Let's push pushing it quite a bit, you could wear the same outfit and maybe at gas station bathrooms or bus station bathrooms clean up a bit. Yeah. But a month, better yet, several months, there's no way that somebody's just like, no thanks, I'm good in these clothes. That doesn't really make any sense.
1: Yeah. I think after a month, you're probably going to at least go and snatch something off of somebody's clothesline to at least yeah. get your sticky shirt off of you.
0: After six months, if I literally was so desperate and I had no other clothes to change into, I'd be walking around the forest naked. I do not give a shit. <laughs> It's just
1: weird. Oh, um, That was a very interesting but upsetting, that poor family to have to live with that, mm-hmm. just having no clue whatever happened.
0: Well, his mom actually passed like a couple years after they found the results, his DNA test and where he ended up. Mm-hmm. And then his dad passed a couple years later. And so you now poor Frank. He's the little brother. Yeah, he's like mid fifties now, but ugh, our kid.
1: Well done. Thanks. Timothy Molnar, that's such a mystery though.
0: Just look up a picture of him. He's such a handsome guy. Like it's just and he was so popular, nobody had anything bad to say about him. It's just weird.
1: It is. But you never know what is happening in somebody's personal private life that they don't tell anybody, even their family. That's so Alright, so let's move on to Laura Palumbo. Palumbo, that's fun
0: to say. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Laura Palumbo grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She was born in May 1971, and her parents, Michael and Jenny Russ Palumbo, also had two other daughters, Sarah and Tammy, and a son, Michael Jr. Laura met a man named Lester Williams in 1990 when she was 19 and he was 26. They started to become pretty serious pretty quickly, but the relationship was good. He was sweet to her, he was respectful, he was kind, they had fun together. And Laura's family liked Lester. He had always been loving towards her and treated her with care and respect. He was also respectful to her parents and made an overall good impression on them. Everybody liked him, he was a nice guy, he was a good guy, he had a good reputation. In fact, Lester Williams had always been able to get people to like him. He had been a standout football star both at Jefferson High School in Cedar Rapids, where he was all state at nose guard.
0: What's nose guard?
1: Do you know what the center is in football? Mm-hmm. That's the guy that tips the ball to the quarterback. The nose guard is the guy on the defense who's facing the center.
0: Okay, got it.
1: So he was all state at nose guard and also as a defensive end and linebacker at an Iowa State University, which is a Big Eight school. He was a team captain and leader who was known for his work ethic and had he played hard and with abandon he had earned two nicknames Tasmanian devil from his teammates and this one cringes me Lester the molester by the media for the way he clobbered the offense
0: you know when you said Lester that's the first place my mind went and I was like I don't know what's gonna happen to this guy in the story so I'm not gonna make fun of his name just yet but you know now I can say it because (laughs) because somebody else said it first because he's cool with it clearly Some college
1: football fans who were around in the 1980s might remember that there was a big scandal in the late 80s. You won't because you didn't exist yet.
0: Oh, I know all about that.
1: (laughs) Whereas sports agents had been caught paying to sign up college football players to represent them in professional contract negotiations. And I remember this because Chris Carter from Ohio State got caught up in it. But what it came down to was that these sports agents were paying the players as incentives to go under their management if they went into the pros after leaving school or to help get the agents' feet through the door with people that the players had influence with. So, like, (laughs) you're maybe a level two player, but you're best friends with the best quarterback in the country who's coming out of college this year. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can influence that quarterback to sign with these agents. So they were paying people to help them get these really promising players into their management team. Okay,
0: that makes sense.
1: The sticking point was that college players weren't allowed to accept any money or valuables until after their NCAA eligibility had expired, either by number of playing years or by signing letters of intent to go into the draft, into Mm -hmm. the pros. Well, Lester Williams, being a second-team All-Big 8 player his junior year, had also been approached by these people and he had received $10,000 to sign with them the summer before his senior year in 1985-86. to Okay. When the whole thing came out in the news, the FBI got involved and a huge investigation was launched. Lester ended up doing community service and repaying some portion of his football scholarship as penalty for being involved in this racket. In addition to that, when threatened with the possibility of a one-year sentence on fraud and tax evasion charges, he also agreed to testify in front of a grand jury as part of the FBI's list of 60 players from 28 schools who were going to provide evidence.
0: Wow.
1: So he did take the money, but he said it was his understanding that it was a loan, contingent on his paying it back when he signed a pro-contract. And there's actually a lot of controversy about it, because college... Football and all athletes, but especially football players, make these universities so much money. Yeah. They make so much money off of these kids and they're giving them free college mm-hmm. but at the same time the kids aren't allowed to work because they have so many hours required and...
0: Oh yeah, there's no job that works the hours. I mean, they barely have enough time to sleep it seems like half the time. Yeah. Especially if they also have to keep their grades up in school. There's no way.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of controversy about why they're not allowed to make any kind of income mm-hmm. during this year. They can't sell anything. Like if they get free tickets to games and then they aren't going to use them or have anybody give them to they aren't allowed to sell those tickets so they are getting something from this situation but they're giving more than they're getting back for sure and most of the kids who play college football are never going into the pros so they're really put in a position where they're not making anything off of this except getting a degree Mm -hmm. and a degree counts but you know that it's not worth as much as it used to be Yeah, That's a lot of words to just explain that, in my opinion, what they were doing, even though it was against the rules, it really wasn't that terrible.
0: Well, I mean, I guess I see why they would put that in place because they don't want people bribing the students to to go for a different direction. But at the same time, if they are like, I don't know. I just think that's so stupid. Is it only stuff that has to do with their football career that they're not allowed to make money off of?
1: I think so. Like, if you had a bike you wanted to sell, I think you could sell your bike. Okay,
0: I'm just making sure to clarify, because, like... Or if
1: you were an artist, you could sell your paintings. But I don't know if there would be a conflict then, because you would be having a bigger audience for your paintings because you were famous from playing college football.
0: Like, it, could you make an OnlyFans? <laughs> like, technically, you have that know. body because of football. It didn't, like,
1: that didn't exist in 1984. How,
0: I mean, how far does this ruling go, you That's know? That's a good like, question. <laughs> I, really, I
1: really don't know the answer to that.
0: <laughs> anyway. But Lester
1: took this $10,000 before his senior year, and his understanding was that he was supposed to pay it back once he got a pro contract.
0: Because mm-hmm.
1: there was a good chance he was going to be taken in the NFL draft the following year after he finished his senior year. Okay. But unfortunately for his hopes to play in the pros, he suffered a knee injury during his senior season and he was not drafted. These sports agents who had given him the money did get him some tryouts with teams, but his knee was never quite the same again and he wasn't retained, so he was released from like the Cardinals and the Seahawks, maybe another team or two. But effectively, this ended his dream of being a professional athlete. Mm. Instead, he started working with a construction company after he graduated from Iowa State University in 1986. So by the time that Laura met Lester in 1990, he had seemingly adjusted to his modified ambitions. He had a place of his own, and he seemed to be ready to move towards a stable family life. Mm -hmm. 1992 was a pivotal year for the couple. As they moved into an apartment together, they set up house, and then their daughter was born in October 1992. Laura ultimately went back to work in her accounting job, and she was going somewhere. She was making something of her life. Two years later, Laura and Lester became engaged in December 1994, and everybody was excited about the engagement. It really seemed like this was just the next step for them. They were going to be financially secure, and they seemed really happy together. But then, shortly into 1995, something's always got to fuck it up, right? Mm -hmm. Things started to become problematic in the relationship. Lester had always had trouble controlling his use of alcohol. In fact, during college, he'd had several arrests for DUI and had his license suspended, Spent some time in the county jail for drunk driving and causing an accident, but he seemed to be able to maintain a mostly productive life and good relationships.
0: I love how all of that going on and him accepting money from a talent agent is the, they're like, all of that's fine. You can stay on the team. Like, no, you can't do that. Well, oddly, um, I wasn't going
1: to bring this up, but the head coach at Iowa State, the year that he had his DUIs, that coach was fired because that team just, it was like a nightmare. Just a frat house. That year they had, I think they had guys that were arrested for assault. They had guys who were in this investigation. They had guys who had DUIs. Mm -hmm. Oh, a couple of them had robbed one of the assistant coaches houses. So this head coach, he's like, (laughs) look, I wasn't part of any of that, but, They let him go, and they hired a new replacement guy. So by the big picture of all the shit happening on that team that year, Mm -hmm. his DUIs probably seemed like, okay, this is under control now. He's learned his lesson. Let's just move on. So I think that's why they kind of swept that one under the rug because there was so much other stuff going on.
0: I guess.
1: But over a short period of time that year in 1995, Williams had started keeping unpredictable hours, doing kind of shady things. Laura said, quote, he'd come home and say he was going out and then I'd see him two or three days later. So she knew he had issues with using alcohol, thought he was out on binges, but he said he wasn't using any other drugs. She wanted to believe him. Laura's mother, Jenny, said that Williams had talked to her about his drinking problem, but she said he never mentioned any other drug. Laura said she suspected but didn't know for sure that Lester had started using other drugs. But in fact, Lester had been arrested at least as early as fall of 1988 in a big task force drug bust where he had been purchasing drugs from a cocaine ring. All the way back at that time when that big investigation was going on, he had already been involved in cocaine.
0: Wait, so he was just there at the place when he got arrested? Or he was literally doing cocaine when he got arrested? I think he
1: purchased cocaine. Okay. And was arrested. Got it. So he had been involved with drugs long before his behavior started to alarm Laura. Court records show he was convicted in 1988 for possession with intent to distribute cocaine. So that was two years before he even met Laura. Mm -hmm. He had a positive urine test in 1991 while he was still on probation from the first arrest. And a warrant was out for his arrest for this parole violation. Because you can't use drugs when you're on parole, obviously. Mm -hmm. He was arrested again in 1993 for the same thing. Both of those last two... He was with Laura at that time. Did she not know about that? She says she did not know. Because he was hiding these things. I think when you are living a secretive second life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think people become very good at hiding these behaviors. So when he started disappearing for days at a time, mm-hmm. he may have been mm-hmm. in jail and means- bonded out and she's like, I don't know where he was for those three days. He just he told me he was leaving and he disappeared. And he came back three days later. And
0: if he does it so often, you're not going to think anything of it. You're not going to be like, oh, this time's different than all the other ones. He's probably in jail. Yeah. So she
1: just thought he was out drinking somewhere. She said she flat out asked him if he was using drugs and he told her no. But from Laura's perspective, she said all she knew was that he had become unpredictable. He was almost never home which kind of makes sense if he was getting arrested and he was out gone for days at a time. Mm -hmm. But the gist of it was that she did not sign up for that lifestyle and she decided she wasn't going to live like that. Williams had also started becoming verbally abusive towards her, although never physically abusive. And between the chaotic life with him and this new verbal abuse, she was done. Mm -hmm. So after she decided that she had had enough, Laura chose to take her daughter and move back in with her parents. Her moving out, and especially taking her daughter with her, made Williams very angry. Angry enough that twice he threatened her life. You can see he's becoming unhinged, and she doesn't want her daughter in that environment, which I think is totally understandable. Mm -hmm. I also would not want my daughter in that environment.
0: Well, and these people always seem to go... You're taking it away from me? How dare you? I'm going to fucking kill you. Okay, well, thank you for proving my point. Yes. Like, how do you not see how stupid what you just said was?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you just validated everything I've just done. Yeah,
0: so we're going to go that way. (laughs) Yes. God.
1: Okay. On Friday, July 22nd, 1995, Williams came over to Laura's parents' house, where she was still living, to see their nearly three-year-old daughter. And since that daughter is now an adult and has her own life and right to privacy, I'm not putting her name in the story. Okay. So on this day, Williams followed Laura down to her parents' basement. Laura sat down on a couch, the little girl climbed up on her lap. Lester was pacing around the basement. He asked her to come back to him to move back into his place, and Laura just said she absolutely wasn't going to do that. He seemed unfocused, distractive, kind of non-responsive. He didn't say anything, like he hadn't heard her. She reached out to touch him, get his attention, just tap him on the arm or whatever. Mm-hmm. She needed him to acknowledge that she said she wasn't coming back. Can't just ignore it and assume I didn't say it. As soon as she had touched him, Laura said he pulled a knife out of his waistband. Then, you know, her eyes fly open wide. At first, she thought it was a gun, but then she realized it was a knife. He knelt down on her feet, which were up on the couch, and she's got her daughter on her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He knelt down on her feet, to pin her down in place on the couch and just started stabbing at her with this knife. Suddenly, upstairs, Jenny Palumbo, Laura's mother, heard Laura screaming and shouting for her. Jenny raced downstairs to see what was wrong and found her granddaughter very upset, in hysterics, and also saw what she thought looked like six foot one and mid 200 pound Williams on top of and holding Laura down on the couch. Jenny didn't understand that Laura was actually being stabbed. Jenny shouted and Williams looked vacantly over at her. And just got up off of Laura without saying a word. Jenny didn't immediately see the knife or really even the blood. She just knew only that her daughter was scared and hurt and distraught. And her little granddaughter was in hysterics. Jenny called an ambulance to come because all she was sure of was that her daughter needed help. Without really even comprehending what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to know exactly what did happen because several news articles specifically stated that the stabbing had occurred both inside and outside the house. But all of the narratives from witnesses don't seem to support that.
0: Okay, so it seems like they're all saying that this happened only in the basement.
1: Yes. Okay. The witnesses that I read happened in the basement. Okay. But some of the news articles in the early days were saying that the stabbing had happened inside and outside the house, but I don't believe that's the case.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't believe news articles, especially the ones that are in a rush to get it out as soon as possible because they're always wrong.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they have information that's just too new and it hasn't been vetted yet. Mm -hmm. The way it seemed to actually happen was that Williams went upstairs and out the front door. He continued to walk outside until he got about a block away and then he went up to the door of a random house. Michael and Joanne Hebert were working inside their house on the next block when Lester Williams showed up at their door. He knocked on the door. He asked to use their phone, saying that the blood on his clothing was from a car crash that he had been in, so they let him in to make a phone call. As he talked on the phone, they heard him as he mumbled something about stabbing someone and having killed her. Joanne heard that much and also heard some sirens outside because Jenny had called for help Mm -hmm. and joanne immediately ran back outside with her plan being to flag down a police car on the street to tell them their suspect was inside talking on her phone Mm -hmm. it took a few minutes before she did see a police car but when she did she told them what the young man had been overheard saying on the phone Her husband, Michael Aber, said he was close enough to overhear Williams talking to his mother and saying, I killed her, I killed her, I stabbed her, I stabbed her. Mr. Aber said that Williams' mother asked, why? Why would you do this? And Williams replied, just because, just because. Williams then hung up the phone after talking to his mother and these two men are now standing awkwardly staring at one another until Williams, quote unquote, politely told the homeowner to leave the house. Mr. Hebert thought this strange guy might be thinking of taking his own life, and he didn't want to go down with him.
0: Mm-hmm. So he
1: did. He walked right out of his own house and left William standing in the kitchen.
0: What a bold thing to ask. Hey, can I come in and use your phone? Okay, now I need you to leave. Yeah,
1: I think that's exactly what happened. How
0: fucking bizarre. Okay. It is
1: bizarre, but the guy was, he did the right thing by mm-hmm. just leaving. Oh, yeah, you don't confront people like that. <laughs> exactly. You have no idea what they're going to do next. Mm-hmm. At that point, the police officers that Joanne Aber had flagged down entered the house and took Williams into custody. In fact, they called for an ambulance and strapped him to a gurney and immobilized him where he couldn't move or do anything else. Because he's covered with blood mm-hmm. and the AIDS epidemic. So everyone was terrified of blood.
0: That's true. They didn't realize yeah, just how they didn't in know. danger they were or not. They didn't know if danger. he
1: might give them AIDS. You know, there's blood all over him. They didn't know if he was actually injured. They just knew this guy's been talking on some stranger's phone and saying he stabbed somebody Mm -hmm. and then there's a woman over on the next street who's actually been stabbed so hmm, this is probably related
0: one plus one equals two exactly
1: laura at the same time was already being taken to the hospital to evaluate how much damage had been done to her laura's arm wrist and finger were all injured from defensive wounds and her scalp and neck had been inflicted with a total of 16 stab wounds and I don't know how he managed to stab her that many times in the state that he was in. Because uh-huh. she said he was almost catatonic. I mean, he's barely even responsive. But he hit a jugular vein. He hit another artery. She underwent immediate surgeries to repair as much as possible of the stab wounds to get the bleeding under control. Mm-hmm. And stabilize these major blood vessels that had been damaged. Doctors were surprised that she had survived all the way to the hospital because of the enormous blood loss.
0: So, when he started stabbing her, did she just toss their daughter to the floor to get her out of the I think way? that her
1: daughter kind of squirmed out of there and just... Just
0: startled her and then she's like, ah.
1: Yeah, I think nobody really detailed that, but I have to imagine that's how it happened.
0: Because otherwise, if she would, had been injured in some way, they probably would have been that. I, I do think.
1: not get any impression that the little girl was injured. Ugh. She was traumatized, but she wasn't physically injured. Right. Ugh. But the initial surgeries that Laura needed to repair all this damage were not the whole story. The wounds had cut the nerves on the left side of her neck. And for some reason, I don't understand why, but masses kept growing on her neck that had to be surgically removed. And I think that had something to do with the nerves being cut. But I don't know why that would cause masses to grow on your neck.
0: The only thing I can think of is like scar tissue can sometimes grow bigger than it is supposed to, it can keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. Yeah. And so then they have to shave it off a lot of times over every so many Well,
1: it didn't sound like the skin was just getting thick. It sounded like they were actually like growths. Huh. So I don't have any explanation for that and I'm sorry I I couldn't find anything about that. Interesting. But over time she had to have a total of forty six surgeries between nineteen ninety six and 2020 to remove those masses that kept regrowing on her neck. 46 times she had to have that done.
0: God, I can't even imagine how sensitive that skin must be now.
1: That's twice a year she had to go through that. And then, two weeks before the trial was set to start, another surgery was found to be needed to correct a neck aneurysm that stemmed from the knife attack. This surgery was in fact scheduled for the week after the trial was to take place in March of 1996. So, now we're getting around to the time of the trial. A no-contact order had been issued after Williams allegedly had made threats against Laura following his arrest for the attack. Before his trial had started, he had violated the no-contact order, because apparently he doesn't understand boundaries. We already knew that, though. (laughs) And he was taken to jail on this infraction on the exact same day that his trial was set to begin, on Monday, March 25, 1996. So he had been out on bail. Okay. Then he broke this no contact order. They took him to jail the same day that his trial was set to start. Great
0: look for the beginning of your trial, dude. <laughs> yeah,
1: you could have shown up in a suit, but now you're showing up in your.
0: There's like, oh in well, your
1: prison orange or whatever. His sentence on the violation was four days, and by the end of the week, Friday, March 29th, he had been released in the morning. So he served his four days sentence while the trial's going on, and mm-hmm. they released him on Friday morning.
0: Okay, so that was just for the. Violation. That was not only for the, for the okay. violation. Gotcha. The defense
1: argued during the trial that he was not guilty because, quote, he had no specific intent to harm Laura Palumbo. In fact, the person he was trying to harm was himself. He testified in his own defense about how he had experienced crack cocaine-induced psychosis and then he was so out of it that he really could not form any true intent about anything. And there might be truth to that, but it's still not Laura's fault that you had crack cocaine-induced psychosis.
0: Yeah, did you not intend to do drugs and then go over to your ex's house with your child present? With a knife? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, if you brought a knife, you had intent. Exactly.
1: That's all there is I to agree, say. I agree with you.
0: Ugh. He said...
1: He had been on a three-day crack smoking binge and he had no memory of what he had done to Laura because he had actually stopped to smoke crack again on his way to go see Laura and their daughter at the end of this three-day binge. Williams testified that this drug had taken over his whole life and that the three-day binge that had preceded the attack on Laura had actually been his attempt to overdose and try to kill himself because of what he had done to his life. That's very well possibly true.
0: Yeah, I do feel bad with people when they are suffering from addictions because I don't think that's necessarily their fault. But if you know this is not your first time taking crack and you just lose your fucking mind, if you know what you're like on crack and go and do this... In front of your daughter, I mean yes. Also, Laura, but your child is going to be there, and you are going to show up on crack. That's not. Yeah. It's so dumb. Okay. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, and some articles said that he was going that day to pick his daughter up.
0: Oh, so he's not even arrive?
1: just. So I don't know if he was there to visit or if he was there to do a custody exchange. Mm. I don't know. But if he was going there to pick his daughter up and he stopped on the way to smoke crack, I don't know what to say to that.
0: Yeah, that doesn't help the story. That doesn't make it sound any better for you. No, because this
1: (laughs) guy, he knew he had an addiction to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And if you have the physiological predilection to become addicted to substances, Mm -hmm. and I don't think all people have that. Mm -hmm. I think some people can use something and then they just don't ever use it again because they just... They don't have that.
0: And it also depends on the place you are in your life. If you're, like, particularly in a bad spot, you're more likely going to be like, oh, I need to do this, versus if you're getting what you need in endorphins outside of that. Yeah, but you, you can see where, how it happened with him.
1: Yeah. I've got a little bit about... Well, let me read this next paragraph, and then we, we can talk about this. Clinical psychologist testified that he had moderate damage to his brain from the years of alcohol and drug abuse. Williams testified he had first smoked cannabis at age 11 that he had drank heavily his senior year of high school so that's where his addiction to alcohol started he had started using powder cocaine as a college senior and then he was introduced to crack cocaine by some guys he worked with in early 1995 when laura had started to see the drastic change in his personality and his reliability So you can see this chain of events and kind of this tumbling down the hill.
0: How it started as just a, oh, this will be fun. Like, ha, 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 we'll have a great weekend. Mm -hmm. And then slowly you keep adding to the list of things that you are doing. And now it's like, well, how are you supposed to get out? How are you supposed to stop?
1: Yeah. But also when you relate the timing of this stuff to what was happening in his life. mm -hmm. He got this $10,000 In the summer before his senior year. Well, during his senior year of college is when he started using cocaine. Mm -hmm. So he's got this money in his pocket. And he's like, well, I can pay for that. I can pay for that. I'll try that.
0: Don't they have to do drug tests? I don't know if they did back then. That makes it. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I don't know when
1: drug testing started. For
0: athletes. And it's probably not even mostly for cocaine. It's probably for, like, steroids mostly. Yeah, right. (laughs) Performance
1: enhancing. Yeah.
0: So that's
1: what the timeline looked like for his substance abuse.
0: Okay. And so he started out as, like, a fund. Then he got more money, so he's expanding his drug range. And then he's starting to get stressed out. Because his career fell apart. And then he's mad that he let that fall apart, so he's adding more to his repertoire or whatever the word is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's how this all happened.
1: The jury foreman said they could not reach agreement that he had really intended to murder Laura, but that it was clear to them he had willfully injured her. So with the verdict, in March 1996, Lester Williams was convicted of willful injury a forcible felony. In lieu of the attempted murder charge, he was found guilty of assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, which was an aggravated misdemeanor. He had been released from jail in the morning, remember off of the four day. That's right. He was released in jail in the morning, but the same afternoon when the jury found him guilty, he was taken right back to jail to await sentencing. So he was out of jail for like five hours. The law stated that conviction on a forcible felony required him to remain in custody. He wasn't allowed to go out and wait at home for sentencing like some people do. Okay. He was out for a few hours and then right back in, and Lester's heartbroken mother, who had seen all this potential in her son, and now it's come to this, Mm -hmm. where now he's going to be spending at least some amount of time in prison. She Mm -hmm. sat and sobbed loudly in the court following the verdict. And I totally understand that kind of a heartbreak for her. Mm -hmm. In May, when the sentencing hearing happened, he was sentenced to 10 years and forced to pay $34,000 in restitution. Laura and her father were furious that he was sentenced to only 10 years since she had felt he had tried to kill her and almost did. I mean, he hit her jugular. Mm -hmm. How do you stick a knife into someone's neck and not have to be accused of trying to kill them? Yeah. She was angry. She said he had tried to kill her and attempted murder would have been a 25-year sentence. So in the end, William served only five years.
0: But, okay, five years for what's the technicality that got him out? Probably the rule was he could serve half. I don't know. Just early release, as long as you don't hurt anybody in here and you don't... Yeah, as long ahead. as you don't
1: hurt any other prisoners, we'll let you out to hurt regular citizens.
0: Mm.
1: Laura was so disgusted by what she saw as the failure of the justice system that she quit her job in accounting. She volunteered with the Public Defender's Office because she truly wanted to understand how defense attorneys could represent people who have done these terrible things. Mm-hmm. But she said while it reaffirmed to her that yes, all accused are entitled to a defense, she didn't know if defense lawyers really understand the impact that violent crime has on a survivor. She went back to college where she studied both criminology and social work because she had an intense need to understand and to help people in situations like hers and to assist them in getting the help she didn't feel that she got when her attacker only spent five years in prison for the crimes against her. She went to work at an abuse shelter. She became a family advocate. She became a survivor's program volunteer. And finally, she began working for the Iowa Department of Human Services as a social worker and a case manager. Mm -hmm. And in between... All of her other volunteering work and study programs, Laura also joined the Restorative Justice Board of the Iowa Department of Corrections, speaking at prisons and other facilities to share her story with inmates and people who've been released either on probation or on parole. Mm-hmm. She felt that she had been able to reach many of them to help them take responsibility and be cognizant of how their actions have long-lasting impacts on people. Sometimes for the rest of their lives, and not only just physical injuries that they're dealing with forever, but the PTSD that survivors experience.
0: That's exactly what I was talking about with my survivor last week.
1: Okay, I had forgotten. I didn't make that connection. And she felt that she had been able to reach them to take responsibility and be cognizant of how their actions have long-lasting impacts on people, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Doing this work was therapeutic for Laura. Another thing that helped her was legally getting a court order to terminate Lester Williams's parental rights.
0: Oh, that doesn't automatically apply after he tried to murder her mother? I don't think so. I well, think she
1: funny. had to go to court to have that done. That's wild. In January of 2004, Laura's sister, Sarah Lynn Palumbo, at the age of 26, was sitting sipping a glass of wine and her fiance, Eric Newton, wanted to have sex. Sarah didn't. In order to override her refusal, Newton slipped cocaine into her glass of wine, thinking that if she was under the influence of the drugs, she would give him what he wanted. Sarah unknowingly ingested the cocaine-laced wine, went into a seizure, and died of an overdose. When Sarah died, she left behind an infant who was now without a mother and whose father was going to prison for 25 years for providing this drug that killed Sarah. So Laura adopted her murdered sister's baby. Mm. Laura has done all of this activism and advocacy and speaking over the years to help people understand what crime victims and survivors go through. It's a different experience and comes with different emotional processing for every person. A few years after her sister died, in the midst of all the pain she was still going through from her injuries and then her grief, Laura asked, "'I've gone through many years of questioning. Why? Why me? Why my family?' It finally hit me the other day that victims are survivors and survivors are heroes and this world needs more heroes. And that's why. End quote. Mm-hmm. And this case makes me so sad because it could have been so different. Mm-hmm. Lester Williams was a good guy. He was a promising young man. He was a hard worker. He was intelligent. Mm-hmm. He just started making bad
0: choices. Well, and he got caught up in the bad choices he made. You can't let, okay, I, I messed up. You have to sit down with yourself and think for a moment and go, but that, I'm not going to let that dictate the rest of my life. Like it doesn't have to be that serious if I don't make it that serious. And yeah. he didn't, he just let it spiral him. Like, well, the thing
1: is, and I was thinking about this when I was writing this story, we treat even high school athletes like they are on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. They get away with so much. They're revered. They're Everybody treats them like little kings. And so when they make a mistake early in life, a lot of the time it's glossed over and nobody, they don't have any consequences for that stuff. So it starts, they grow up thinking, oh, I can do this and nobody's going to try to stop me. Nobody's yeah. going to make me pay for this.
0: That's true. It almost comes out of like a, oh, I know this is wrong, but I'm allowed to do this. Yeah. Like, but it's okay for me to do this because what I offer to everybody. Yeah. And it's
1: like. Exactly. It's like ugh. they're providing a service. It's an entertainment. It's not like you're curing cancer or, you know, mm-hmm. saving lives. You're you're playing a game and it's a sport. I love football. I absolutely love football.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that doesn't mean that the people who play football are superior humans. They're just people who are really good at playing a game. Mm-hmm. It's a fun game to watch, for sure, but they're still just normal people. He started making these choices that were leading him to the next bad choice and then the next bad choice. Mm -hmm. And once he started down that road, this addiction just took over.
0: Yeah, you can't get back out after a certain depth into it.
1: And there's probably some connection between the stuff he was doing and the fact that his football career didn't work out for him.
0: Yeah, and that knee injury certainly did not help. No. But how do you know that there wasn't some connection there? That's true. That's I mean... True. If you, you were on drugs know. and went to the gym or something like that and something went wrong, could very well.
1: So I don't know that there yes. was a connection. But it's just those two things were very parallel to each other. And you never know if mm-hmm. they had anything to do with each other. Yeah. But his life could have been different. And mm-hmm. Laura's life could have been different. And their little girl's life certainly could have been different. Because who knows, you know, that ripple effect. It just... You start affecting people's lives, and then they start affecting other people's lives. And now mm-hmm. you've affected a hell of a lot of people that you don't even know.
0: And we'll never know. Yeah. And we'll
1: never know. So it's kind of a story of lost potential and injuries that really were preventable.
0: What She's year did you say Laura's sister was murdered?
1: In 2004.
0: Oh Wow, so not too long after, like not even a decade?
1: No, not even a decade
0: her poor parents
1: yeah so that was a sad story that was a preventable story i just think that laura has done so much she came out of this incident with just a mission Mm -hmm. she was not happy with what happened in court and she wanted to go out and find out why did this happen how can these people not take responsibility for what they've done how do you defend somebody that you know stabbed someone in their neck how do you I defend still that? I don't
0: understand that either. I mean, I've seen defense lawyers talk about it and like, well, if you were ever on trial and you wanted a lawyer, you would suddenly believe in defense lawyers and their practice. And it's like, yeah, but I also would not ever be in a trial where I've- Where i stabbed somebody brutally in brutally raped or murdered somebody. That is not anything that I have to worry about ever. So no, I don't understand where you're coming from, even if you're trying to paint it in your weird lawyer way of, oh, you would want this if it was you.
1: Yeah, I'm completely on- on board with providing a defense attorney who makes sure that the proceedings are legal. Mm-hmm. I'm not on board with providing a defense attorney who's trying to get rid of valid evidence or mm-hmm. who's trying to
0: point the finger at the victim. That victim, shit victim blaming me. is. Yeah. Like, oh, well, she wasn't raped. She's a whore. She's had five sexual partners in the last year. And she drank two
1: glasses of wine that night. She was yeah. asking for it.
0: Yeah. She yeah. didn't even wear her chastity belt to the bar. What are you talking about? I think I
1: that it. there's probably less of that kind of victim blaming now because I would think most judges anymore are probably more, more cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. And probably wouldn't let it go as far.
0: Although. That's true. And I think that would count as hearsay a lot of time compared to, oh, do you have proof that this woman had sex with five people that year? And who cares if she did? Right. And it, like, you just. That's not relevant to the case. They can just throw that out right away. So. Right.
1: Just because she had five boyfriends last year, or five one-night stands, or five whatever, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you have the right to decide you're going to. Yep. So that is the story of Laura Palumbo she took a bad thing that happened to her and she went out to help other people who needed to be supported.
0: Mm-hmm. And I do like that program that she works through, because I mean, it's not going to touch all of the prisoners that you talk to and stuff, but one or two that could be the thing that, oh I, I guess I didn't think of it like that and yes. then you just, you know it humanizes the victim and the person doing that so
1: yeah well there's that series on i think it's on netflix about the stalkers
0: the way they picked
1: these people who were the stalkers
0: oh it's literally i am a stalker right i
1: i think that is yeah
0: yeah some
1: of them are like yeah i shouldn't have done what i did now i see what was wrong with it but some of them were like well I, i don't think that what i did was so bad
0: yeah it's like oh if she had just answered the phone I wouldn't have had to break into her house and kill her and her boyfriend, you know? Yeah. Those people are just... Yeah, so... Delusional. So I think
1: that if you can find a way to get through to people, Mm -hmm. then go for it, because I don't know how things are going to get any better otherwise.
0: So that is that. Do you know what happened to him after he got out of jail? Prison?
1: I've... Well, he's got a really common name. Mm -hmm. But I did do some searches on him in later years. And I saw several news articles since he would have gotten out of prison. Mm -hmm. And there was a Lester Williams who was arrested multiple times in Cedar Rapids... For forgery on people's bank accounts. And they were different people, so it was multiple cases. But I don't know for certain if it was yeah, him, him, because it's a pretty common name, and there were several Lester Williams in that area, so I don't know for sure if it was the same guy.
0: Weird. So it's possible he went to white collar crimes.
1: Well, maybe he, maybe he stopped doing drugs. Well, could be. And that would kind of cut down on the violence. Well,
0: honestly, I would rather he do forgery than... <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's your bank account he's stealing, then I, I guess think that I would wouldn't rather be so good, but it's better that than throat slice. a knife in your throat.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I would take somebody emptying my bank account versus going and attacking somebody else because they're high on drugs, so whatever.
1: Agreed. Because, like we said last week, money is not worth a life.
0: Money ain't worth shit. It gets you nowhere in life anyway.
1: Oh, that's not true. It does help. Not having it is a bad thing, but having it does not make life automatically happy. Thank you for joining us for episode 72 this week, and we will see you next week for
0: episode 73. Yes. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. I'm not just, re-recording. I'm not bad. invested. Vo- I so just voice. So just repeat it and then just cut you out? In two days. I don't know. It tells you on Apple Podcasts how many hours worth. If we
1: average 40 minutes per episode and we have 70 episodes, that's no, 2,800 minutes. Let me
0: just look at the hours and we can tell you the exact number. All right. How many? Okay. We have... Never mind, it doesn't tell you. 87 times 40. 38, 40.
1: 3,480 divided by 60. 58. That's 58 hours. You can't do that in two days. You can
0: if you do double speed. 29 hours. Do you know that DJ they hired? The neighbors? The neighbors that who were blaring music until midnight? We need to hire that DJ on the two days you're out of town. Just have him set up in the front yard <laughs> and just play on top volume all of our podcast episodes <laughs> from beginning to end.
1: And the neighbors are like, hello, is this the county police? The people across the street keep playing
0: something that starts with do 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 mow mow At first I thought I was losing my damn mind because it sounded like Sky Kitty was talking to me. Turns out I think it's just a really loud regular kitty. Who plays the ukulele? <laughs> Who plays the ukulele? <laughs> I'm gonna go physically attack the kitty. Wow, wow, wubsy.
1: Are you gonna just do a silent sound check or <laughs> non sound check?
0: This is my sabbatical. I don't even know what that word means. I just think I vaguely used to it right, maybe.
1: Hi, this is Beth, and we are starting <laughs> off with a real. And sh- we are Beth. <laughs> That's not how we start. Maybe you should start.
0: <laughs> Hello, this is Bailey, and we are <laughs> not sure what we're doing. <laughs>
1: gotta call a spade a spade honey i don't know what that means that means if it i just don't know what a spade means. if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck and sounds oh, like a duck it's a duck i do know about ducks okay so i, I it
0: ba, ba, ba. did it yep this what's this that wasn't broken
1: skeletalized skeletonized skeletalized Skeletal. skeletalized
0: skeletalized skeletalized Skeletized. Skeletalized. The gas station around here. Around where
1: a, you're on audio.
0: Oh. <laughs> His name was...
1: After he graduated from Ohio from Ohio State. <laughs> That's
0: a lie!
1: He didn't go to Ohio State. He came
0: to the dark side.
1: <laughs> I lost my just script. sneak
0: a vodka drink.
1: The law stated that conviction on a forcible felony... I just read that.
0: Because I have a long history of stabbing my exes and playing college football. Yes. I'm a
1: little disappointed in your lack of... It's hitting too of- close
0: to home. For you to...
1: I was really hoping that you'd make the pros this year but why did you do this to me Bailey somebody's digging in the litter box
0: sorry but I'm not gonna bring down when we go camping with puss in the middle of the woods right. she'll catch us tunas and lizards to eat for dinner every night in okay. national park then we'll
1: end up murdered. murdered by some national park killer
0: not if we learn jiu first oh. I am too old to do jiu-jitsu then you just stay in your cave and I'll do it outside there everybody was kung fu fighting (laughs) and i think we said bye right yeah we did